Chapter 54 Edmund, my old friend Edmund, who I thought long dead, how in the world had he managed to survive on his own so long? He must be greatly changed, I thought. I had hope for the first time in years. I barely recognized the odd sensation. He found us the week after we landed, Edmund explained in response to my bemused face. He said he'd been on a supply run with that last group of unfortunates, and that he'd grown ill and disoriented one eve, somehow managing to get himself deucedly lost in the forests. In a hurricane, no less. Damn sad tale, we've always said. But this will cheer him so. His dear friend, Henry, he will be amazed. I was embraced and carried back to camp atop the one hail horse, surrounded by stares and questions as we rode through the raw wooden gates like victorious warriors returning from battle. What were the odds? Edmund. And we had both been saved. I savored that joy as I searched the small, straggly group of strangers' faces for Edmund with naive cheer. Edmund, Edmund called out, repeating to a nearby woman. Edmund? He's gone out with the trading party, but I imagine them back any day, she supplied with a nervous smile. Edmund bobbed his head as he turned back to me with an apologetic wink, as luck would have it. The settlement was less populated than I'd thought at first glance. I reflected later as I nestled on a tick bed by the fire. There were far too many crude huts for the rough count of settlers I'd made when I arrived. And yet, they were quick to explain that their leader, John White, had already made his way back to England for assistance, as the site wasn't quite all they'd been led to believe. Sounded familiar enough. I found the remaining Englishmen suffered many of the same tragedies as our ignorant crew, and their numbers continued to dwindle unchecked since their arrival, several having gone missing just these past few weeks. It seemed their decaying relations with the local natives was to be blamed. My heart dropped further as I heard this tidbit over a savory porridge by the central campfire the next day, a filthy blonde-haired woman recounting the details with an air of Christian acceptance. Seems Edmund, my long-lost friend, had been an absolute godsend, having wandered into their midst mere days after White's departure home for supplies. Edmund had been instrumental in protecting them from the local Indians and a huge help in identifying edible flora and fauna. True, their numbers continued to fall even with this angel watching over them, but his appearance alone had been seen as a sign from the Almighty. My mouth was dry with anxiety as she finished, wandering away after an apologetic shrug when I failed to answer a question I hadn't heard. A victorious ring of cheers disrupted my paranoid ruminations a cascade of noises that heralded the return of the traitors, my Edmund presumably among them. It would be good to put my hands on his shoulders and assure myself of his safety, assure myself of mine. The group that returned to us, from what I heard murmured as they rode into camp, was not the same party that rode slowly through their listing, ineffectual gates ten days before. This silent octet led nine horses with sixteen packs, a pack for each man who left. Several settlers cried in distress as their loved ones failed to appear. And then I saw him. Edmund. He winked as he went by, his face otherwise dirty, downcast and obscured by the scarf looped about his head in lieu of a hat. 
other than his costume, Bennett Chapel seemed to be thriving once again. There were surprised cries and wails of grief upon the announcement that these eight were all that was left of an original party of sixteen, the Indians having struck cruelly and repeatedly once again. It was a tragic tale told over the fire and porridge that morning. He remained silent, as I'd heard Edmund was wont to do, as the others told in faltering descriptions of the series of tragedies that had befallen them on their expedition. I felt his eyes upon me as they spoke, daring me to expose him, to expose us both. The savages, unseen, had picked the settlers off one by one, only appearing during a violent afternoon gale to taunt them from the trees, carrying their brethren off in the dark one by one while they struggled to return home. I realized then that he'd never stop. Bennett would destroy everyone I ever cared for, every time. This was a game to him. He had been alive so long he no longer valued life itself, and he envied me mine, my naive hope. That's not Edmund, I shouted abruptly. The orators fell silent in their tale. Everyone turned to me. That is Bennett Chapel, and he is death incarnate. He killed the real Edmund, I'm quite sure, and now he's killing you. I caught the exchange of several knowing glances in my side eye as I pushed myself away from Bennett to the other side of the lean-to, shaking his cold hands from my shoulder while he shrugged, apologizing for me. I was worried this would happen, Bennett supplied quietly, smoothly, going on with a helpless head shake. He was quite mad the last time I saw him. I hesitated to say, but I thought I'd never see him again. More murmurs around the fire and funny looks, as if Bennett had been building this narrative for a good portion of his time here. He'd already poisoned the well, it seemed. I was restrained, for my own good, they told me, as I railed at them with quarter strength, careful not to toss them from me like dolls, aware that if I lost control, Bennett would surely follow suit, and then I'd be responsible for a full massacre. I knew then I had to kill him or he must kill me, and I had to find the courage to accept either. I waited for both. It was quiet. The fire nearby had dwindled in the light wind to ashes, thin tendrils of smoke drifting between the soaring trees. It had been quieter than normal with another small, desperate hunting party gone from the camp for the week, but I'd enjoyed the solitude of my captivity. I had been dreaming of the very thing I was doing, lazing about. Usually in the near distance, there were the sounds of leather-clad footsteps on the soft, leafy loam of the ground, the noise of cooking, working together to string drying meats, the shouts of joy when happy, the screams of men and women over the crack of falling trees they chopped in teams from the perimeters of camp. Screams of men and women heard the distant screams, and then silence, just silence and the bird calls from the forest around the camp. Was it children playing? But there was just the one little girl here, a silent child, her mother long dead and her father gone from fever, they had said. It didn't sound right. Nothing did. Even the vacuum of sound that drifted across the village with an advancing, shadow-casting bank of clouds seemed misplaced. My heart raced as I bolted from my nest, running as I hit the ground, 
pushing through the ineffectual crossbolts, securing the thatched door. My anxieties peaked. I raced through camp, my heart dropping further as I realized the settlement was quite empty. Not a single industrious soul about in the afternoon warmth. Just a bird call in the distance, a rumble from the clouds on the horizon. Deadly silence. I slowed, caution directing me as I passed through the web of log cabins and wood and skin huts to the center fire of the camp. There should have been scores of people working together, passing through, reining their horses, hauling their stores from the frozen pits on the edges of camp. It took me several moments of shock to realize what I was looking at. The great stack of lumber in the center of camp, the pile of trash beside it, a large and ever-burgeoning pile of refuse. But the pile of refuse, it was bodies. Stacks of people, the last of Bennett's victims still bleeding and broken at the top of the pile. Bennett smiled, his legs dangling from atop the monstrous scene, a mischievous grin on his pink lips. Henry, he gasped, holding his hands to his heart. What have you done? My first instinct was to fly at him, to tear his limbs from his body and throw him back atop the pile where he sat like an ogre, numb to the carnage beneath. It was and remains the single worst thing I've ever seen in my long life. Nothing I could ever forget. It haunts me still. No, I roared. I mean, yes, he finished with a shrug, hopping down and fastidiously wiping his hands across his cambric pants. Only then did I realize my ultimate folly, my total and utter ruin. I'd been so caught up in my own transformation. I had never even mentioned Bennett's name to these people before he returned to the settlement. Never warned them of the possibility. Never thought to prepare them for a thing, because I had been afraid. This was all my fault. And now it was too late. My cowardice had been their end. This will happen again and again. Bennett announced confidently. You did this, Henry. You killed all these people. I didn't. I heard myself protest weakly. You were already halfway done when I got here, Bennett lied. Are you sure you're feeling all right? Had I? I had been sleeping. I, I was locked and jailed. I was only dreaming of the settler screaming, wasn't I? And yet, my hands were covered in blood when I looked down. I was covered in someone else's blood. What had I done? You've been busy, I stated hollowly, surveying the carnage. I'm not sure if you're cut out for this after all, Henry, Bennett sighed, kicking the foot of a nearby corpse wistfully. I know I'm not. I felt myself go numb, my legs crumpling beneath me. Well, Bennett answered cheerfully, hovering over me with a sneer. This power I've given you is not always the same. You could just die still and state it. Sometimes my friends get very sick and die when this happens. He stated this as if it would cheer me, smiling when I glanced up with a hopeful frown. It's true, he nodded sagely. Or you could do yourself a favor and kill yourself now. I knew then that he hadn't witnessed this very thing and the failed results years ago, but I didn't enlighten him to my contrary findings. Or maybe he did know what had happened and mocked me still. Maybe it made him stronger, too. I looked down at my hands, tears carving white tracks on my blood-caked face. 
Then it turned as if to leave, spinning back around. There's one other thing you could do, Henry. If you weren't such an all-encompassing coward, you could take this knife of yours and kill me. And if you did that, you just might become, well, weak again. But you would be back to yourself. Then it didn't speak then. He only cocked an eyebrow, shrugging, backlit dramatically by the roaring infernos of several cabins, his destructive pattern complete. He held the knife up, the curved blade winking in the firelight before hefting it into his left hand, catching it flat on his palm before holding the weapon out to me invitingly. I thought I'd left that behind at the fort. Oh, Henry, if you can't love me back, at least put me out of my misery, he pleaded disingenuously. He held his palm up higher, level to my eye line, pushing the deadly blade ever closer to me. You know you want to. I snatched the knife from his palm, testing the weight in my right hand before facing Bennett's steady gaze one last time. If you do this, you can be free, he shouted over the din. But you'll be weak again. You'll die one day, just like everyone you've ever known. He studied me as he made these proclamations. If you wait even one more day, it won't work. He had already lied to me over and over. What were the chances this wasn't just another ruse? If I leave, you'll never see me again, Bennett warned, turning his back to me. I'm going home, Henry. I'll leave you here with these savages for the rest of time so you can think about things. Here, he turned back and paused, arms raised at his sides like a religious statue. I froze as he leaned forward a bit, closing his eyes and lifting his chest to me in offering. I knew what I should do, but I couldn't. I couldn't make myself move. He frowned, his eyes snapping open as he sighed in disappointment. And then he left. Just like that two steps forward before zipping away, crossing into the wall of snow-tipped trees that seemed to lie forever in every direction. The knife drooped in the loose grip of my hand as I stood assessing the senseless massacre before me, and I vowed then and there that the next time I saw Bennett, I would be brave. But for now, now I ran. It was fully dark when I reached the beach. The rhythmic lull of the shoreline pulled me to the sand where a crisp north wind battered the choppy waves of the cove. I thought it a wild animal at first crouched by the water, its antlers visible in the moonlight between the water and the clouds above. The animal stood erect, his antlers seeming to stretch clean up to the sky. A giant beast with the fur of many, the black and white stripes of raccoon and badger creating a tasseled frill that swept a semicircle of sand around the creature's knee-high moccasins. The beast pointed at me with its claw, its red eyes burning into mine. And then I heard her voice, the scratchy echo of the sassafras crone, the clicking bear claw sewn to the staff at her side, now shaking before my parted lips as I fell to my knees and awaited a killing blow. The wind howled as the waves picked up, and thunder cracked overhead, followed by an electric streak of light that traveled across the horizon where the sky met the ocean. The crone put a finger to her mouth, as if to silence me with a burst of lightning behind her head. I bowed my own, accepting my fate. I looked up, raising my arms at my side and opening my heart to her, but it was only the wind that howled. I knelt, my arms akimbo, offering my life in exchange for my lack of courage. Yet nothing happened. The crone had stepped back, the staff raised. 
I saw the black outlines of several silent witnesses then around a distant, small fire lit in anticipation of my visit, eight dark eyes winking in the moonlight. Wamenu held his right hand up as he approached, palm forward in peace as when we'd first met on board. Words failed me as I stood and went to take his hand in mine. No, Henry, he said to stop me, and it did. This is not for you, but for my ancestors and those that come next. The sassafras crone stepped closer, her staff clinking with each footfall on the sand it steadied. I pulled Bennett's knife from my waistband, my hand shaking under its deceptive weight, and offered it to her. Cursed boy, she hissed in perfectly accented Queen's English, clear as glass, pushing the knife in my hand back with an impatient grunt. You cannot kill what will not rot. No matter what you do, that devil will not die. His fathers, your grandfathers, are older than the mountains themselves. They walked this land, while our people still crawled in the dirt. A claw-like hand flew out, gripping my neck with surprising strength. How do we stop him? I heard myself choke out, spots dancing before my eyes. It will take more than that blade, boy. She shook her staff towards me with her other hand, gesturing to the knife in mine before adding, That alone is not enough. That was interesting, because Bennett sure seemed to think that it was. Just kill him while we have him, Wamenu pled. Silence! She let go of my throat, raising her hand to shush him, her clear eye fixed on mine. You must find your courage, Henry. You alone are not enough. You need at least three of your strength to even wound him. He will never die, but he can be stopped. For as long as his body, his heart, and his head are kept separate, only then, and not forever. You must find your people. You must find family for this to work. Do you understand? They must have your blood. His blood, the taint of blood that runs through your tree. I nodded mutely. Wamenu's hatchet caught my attention from the corner of my eye, just as it flashed overhead, striking my neck with a startling crack, and the world disappeared in a wink. Regardless, my last conscious thought was a warm one. Family. There was a short, handwritten note and Henry's recognizable scrawl at the bottom of the final page of the typed manuscript, but Gloria's eyes filled with tears as she tried to finish it, blurring the spidery lines of his postscript. She wept, her heart broken open for all of them. Henry wanted family. He needed family. His blood. And hers. That's what he had been trying to tell her. How did she use this to help him now? Was it possible that Bennett didn't know of this secret meeting all these years later? Could she really trust Henry after everything he'd done? Did she use this information to help him? Or did she save herself? Or could she find the courage to do both? 